Many of you won't be old enough, but those of you who are, let me invite you to think back 19 years. 1996, the year that Debbie and I came, we moved to Nottingham to plant this church, and at that time, I had never written an email, I had never used the internet, I'd never used a mobile phone, a time that many of you would call the olden days. <laughs> now, if I wanted to show a photograph in a talk, as I will tonight, I would have had to, first of all, source that picture, and the way I'd have had to do it would be to go to a public library sort through all the books, open up, eventually find an image. If I wanted to capture that for you, I'd have had to go get my camera, get a special type of film to put in it called slide film, photograph the page, take it to the chemist, wait a few days, pick up my slides, and then here we'd have had to erect a screen and a slide projector. Someone probably on a little stepladder would have got up there and at the appropriate point would have gone and slid the slide in front of the light and you'd have seen the picture. Many hours work over a number of days. Fast forward to now, 19 years on, I would type into Google the subject of the picture I wanted. I'd choose amongst that great choice that comes up on Google Images, save the one I wanted, email it to media, it would appear on here on Sunday, and someone up there would click a, uh, a switch and you'd see it. A few minutes work. In today's instant world that many of you have grown up in, you have no idea what I'm talking about in the olden days, we, we Expect to get what we want. We want it now, we want a vast choice, and we want it pretty much straight away. Now, as I prepared today's talk, I had a few pictures to include, some which I had taken on my phone, and some which I accessed from the internet. And uh, I was going away for a couple of days, the end of the week, I had to get all this done, and so I was working on Tuesday evening, I was working on Thursday evening, I sent a few the first night, one on the second night, and the problem was, that our internet connection at home decided to malfunction on both evenings, despite a very helpful colleague and a couple of other computer whizzes doing a lot of work to, to uh, fix it. So in total, sending eight photographs to media took me about three hours. Three hours when I was hoping it would take about three minutes. Three hours of attempts with multiple means, because the Wi-Fi wasn't working, so we were trying to pair it with a phone, and then we were laptop, desktop, recreate the PowerPoint and access again. It was absolute chaos, and uh, significantly caused a rise, shall we say, in my blood pressure. And so moments after I would just attempt again to send, I put my laptop on the carpet right by the router and walked away, because I feared for the health and survival of my laptop if, <laughs> if that failed message popped up again. And memories of Basil Fawlty <laughs> with a branch in hand beating up his little red car come to mind. I went on the internet this morning just to have a quick look. There's a, there's a short clip. If you don't know what I'm talking about with Basil Fawlty, you've just got to see that, beating up his car. Basil Fawlty frustration, you'll find it. And um, after about 10 minutes, I gave up because, as you know, my internet isn't working. So, now, all that to say this, that uh, all that work was still much quicker than it would have been 19 years ago, but with technology making life so much more instant, I was absolutely exasperated. I don't know whether any of you can relate to that experience. I read a st statistic that four out of 10 people abandon a website that takes more than three seconds to load. 
three seconds passes and we can't wait any longer, so we tap the back button. When I'm on Twitter, I'm just flicking through. People have got lovely Twitter photographs. Suddenly, as someone's on Instagram, I touch that, it's like, whoa, whoa, forget it. You know, I'll move on to the next thing. I don't want to wait two seconds for a picture if I'm looking through. Seems like whatever we want, we want it right now. In fact, there may be some of you sitting there right now, you've listened to me for about four minutes. You're already wondering, when is John actually going to make a point? <laughs> Last time I spoke, we began a series looking at the subject of investment and return. Jesus came not to take anything from us, but to give us an experience of life at its very best. And that experience can start here and now. The problem is that we can't just tap a button and get life to the full. It takes something on our part. It takes investment. And it takes time. And both of those things are difficult for people who so often demand immediate satisfaction and instant reward. Last time we saw that investment and return is a biblical principle. In the Bible, it's very often referred to as sowing and reaping. If we want to reap certain things, then we'll need to sow something else to get it. And in the same way, if we want the kind of fulfilling life that Jesus talks about, there are some things that we can pay attention to which will contribute to that. So today I want to take us to perhaps the most important text on the subject of living the kind of life, uh, the rewarded life that Jesus offers us, which opens up for us the dynamics of a life which is full of good fruit. And it uh, gives us the answer to what we need to pay attention to if we want to live a fruitful life. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be fruitful. I want to live life to the full, and I want my life to count. I want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. I want to be productive, effective in demonstrating God's love. I want to become more like Jesus every year that goes on, and I want to point loads and loads and loads of people towards him. I want to pray prayers that get answered in amazing ways. I want to express God's nature. I want to live an anointed life, which is way beyond human explanation. I want to achieve things which in my own strength would simply be impossible. And I want the fruits of the Spirit to be exhibited and experienced through my life. I want love. I want joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I want those things as a part of my life. And as I said last time, we don't live fruitful lives by trying our hardest to become fruitful. We don't achieve any of the things I've just listed by trying to achieve them, by just striving harder. The principle of investment and return is vital here. If I want that result, if you want a result, anything like that, what do I need to do? In John 15, John records the words of Jesus to his 11 disciples after they've celebrated the Last Supper, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he talks about their relationship with him, and he uses an analogy, a word picture of a grapevine. He likens a fruitful life to being a branch which is vitally attached to himself the vine. So this is John chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, you might like to turn with it, uh, with me to it. If not, then the screen will show the text as I read it. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, 
while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will become even more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be, be, sorry, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. First thing I note from this is this, that fruitfulness comes from remaining. Some of the older translations use the word abiding, abiding in the vine, staying in the vine. And a really fruitful life comes from remaining in Jesus, staying joined to Jesus, staying in vital connection to him. You can often tell the thrust of a passage by the number of times a word is used. And this passage is basically about remaining and fruit. It's also about love, which I'll come on to later. Jesus mentions remaining 11 times and the fruit of remaining joined to him nine times. He says that it's his Father's will that we are fruitful, very fruitful. Verse 8, this is my, to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to me my disciples. Verse 16, I chose and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Jesus makes it very clear that we can't produce fruit like what I talked about earlier without him. He says in verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Surely it doesn't mean nothing apart from him. You know, no branch can bear fruit by itself. You can't do anything. Well, what does he mean by nothing? Obviously, people who are not even believers do stuff. So it can't refer to everything. What does it mean, nothing? Well, what Jesus means is you can't bear fruit. You can't be fruitful like the things I just talked about. The kind of fruit, that kind of fruit only grows on branches which are vitally joined to Jesus. And as I said earlier, we don't bear fruit by trying our hardest to be fruitful. A branch on a grapevine doesn't strive to produce grapes. It doesn't create fruits by kind of just screwing up its face and just wishing grapes into being. All that effort, it doesn't do that. What it does is relaxes, basically, a branch. It sits there, it remains in the vine, and it is a conduit for the sap which is flowing through the vine. Now, I'm assuming that not many of us here are viticulturists. 
Many of the rest of us have no idea what a viticulturalist is. Kind of, I can't even pronounce it, viticulturist. So let me just give another analogy which I found helpful. Any, incidentally, a viticulturist is someone who knows a lot about growing grapes. My hand, we all understand, we have, most of us, two of these. It's an amazing piece of biological engineering and my hand can grip things or my fingers move independently of each other, they can press against my opposing thumb at my will and I have an incredible sense of feel. Nerve impulses flow from my brain to stimulate the various muscles to contract in exact ways. Now, because my hand works as it does, I, I'm fairly skillful at making things or fixing things. Some of you have hands which can play the piano or the guitar or you can paint or a whole host of things. Your hands are effective in doing what God designed them to do. Now, supposing I cut my arm off at the shoulder, my hand would be useless, right? Unless somebody sewed my arm back on, it got healed up, and then it might work again. It only works, my hand, because it's attached to me. If instead of cutting my arm off, I just put a tourniquet on my arm, like completely cut off the blood supply, then it doesn't matter how hard my hand tried, it needs my blood flow to keep it oxygenated, to keep it you know, fueled, to keep it alive, and to keep it healthy. And in the vine analogy, the branch is only fruitful if the sap is flowing through it. If it remains attached to the vine, the sap from the vine will flow through it. The natural result will be grapes, the fruit of the vine. In due time, the fruit will just appear. The branch isn't striving, it's just simply remaining. So what does it mean to remain in the vine? What does it mean to abide in Jesus, to stay joined to Jesus? Well, it means a lot. There's a lot more to remaining in him than I can possibly cover in tonight's talk. But let me just highlight two major aspects that I, uh, of remaining as I understand them. The first is this. Remaining means relationship. Many of you have computers which use Wi-Fi to connect to the Internet, which is a wonderful thing especially when your Wi-Fi is actually working. And depending on how close your computer is to the next network router, the quality of the connection will vary. Every Wi-Fi network has a name or a series of letters and numbers, and very, not very imaginatively, the one at our house is called Write Home. So when people visit and they say, can I get online, do my emails, then, what's that doing up there? It's a bit premature. Uh, we give them the access code and then they can connect and they can do their emails or, or whatever. Now, one of my colleagues told me that when they visit a family member's house, their phone or computer will immediately connect with their Wi-Fi, and their family member has named their Wi-Fi network Jesus. And so their computer would connect to Jesus when they arrived and then tell them the strength of their connection was anything from poor through to excellent. <laughs> Remaining in Jesus, as described in this chapter, is very similar. Every follower of Jesus, every believer, every Christian has that connection, but the strength of that connection will vary person to person, and it will also vary from one week to the next. Some of you who wouldn't yet count yourself as a follower of Jesus, you don't feel you even have the access code. You've never connected to Jesus. You've never felt uh, even the beginning of this, and we would love to give you the opportunity tonight. It's a great time to start a journey of walking with Jesus to be introduced to him, to actually make that connection. And uh, we can do that at the end if you would like to. Jesus talks about us being his friends in the passage as well. This is verse 15. I no longer call you servants 
because servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Now, friends talk to each other. The deeper the relationship is, the more time is likely to be spent talking. They stay in touch with each other. Friends spend time together. They enjoy doing things together. They just enjoy being together in each other's company. And it's the same with remaining in Jesus. Friends of Jesus know what he's thinking. That's one of the keys to answered prayer as we pray for those things a father specifically wants to do. Jesus mentions the word love or loved nine times in the passage, indicating the closeness of that relationship. It's not a casual relationship. It's not a master-servant relationship. It's one of deep love. Relationship with anyone means spending time with them. Some of us get so busy, we find that our relationships with certain friends become more distant, and the busyness of life just squeezes our social time out with them. We all know the importance of time spent hanging out with friends. And it's the same with the Lord. We can so easily allow busyness to squeeze our time with the Lord to a minimum. But the Christian life has to be one where we spend time talking to Him and listening to Him. So if the return is fruitfulness, the thing we need to invest is time. Some of you will know that one of my favorite books on the subject of a relationship with God is this one. It's Bob Sorge, Secrets of the Secret Place, and we usually have them available on the bookstall, and he writes this. Every moment you spend in the secret place is an investment. Seeds are being planted in your heart that will bring forth a harvest. There was a book written about 400 years ago by a guy called Brother Lawrence who Talk to, it's talk, called Practicing His Presence, and in it he talks about being aware of the Lord's presence at every waking moment, conversing with Him almost continually through the day. And some people find they can do this, that they practice the presence of God. It's just the way they have a relationship with God. They find themselves just chatting to Him as they're going about doing the washing up, driving their car. They're just aware of His closeness, and they get into various activities, just very natural for them to drift into conversation with the Lord numerous times a day. Now, I'm rather weak at this. I've read that book and I've tried, but I'm rubbish at it. So basically because I find I get very focused on the thing that I'm doing at any given time. And I can find actually that I've not talked to the Lord, uh, been aware of it for hours on end. And so if you're like me, it's important to focus on spending time with God and doing it in chunks, finding time to do that and to find times where, where um, you can be quiet, basically, have some quiet time. Now, that little phrase, quiet time, is one which strikes dread into many Christians who grew up in the years that I did with the belief that one must dutifully work through your Bible study notes at some hour in the morning when every normal person is still asleep. Every day with Selwyn. Some of you remember that, Selwyn Hughes wrote, every day with Jesus, and that's what we were brought up to do. Some, you know, time when everyone else is asleep, I've got to do these wretched Bible notes. We hated it. I never found getting up in the morning easy. I still don't. So having an appointment with God at the same time early each morning has never really worked for me. So I do think that if it fits you personally to have a routine like that, it's really valuable actually to start your day right at the beginning with Jesus. It will affect the rest of your day by focusing you on Jesus from the start. But it may not work for everybody that way. So I find the analogy of charging your mobile phone helpful. Some people pop their phone on charge at the same time each day for just to top it up. 
Others might leave it longer, and then they put it on charge for a longer period of time when it's running lower. Some people like routine. They plug into Jesus regularly in relatively short times. Others might wait longer. Between times, then spend an extended time with him. So as with any relationship, time spent together needs to be responsive to that relationship. Some of you are married. If you're married and you insist that the time that you have allotted for you to speak to and listen to your spouse is between 7.10 and 7.30 a.m. each morning, that's your time to converse, and the rest of the day you ignore each other, you may find that your relationship isn't going to work very, very well. Sometimes there'll be uh, periods where you don't see each other for a couple of days maybe, and then you spend the whole evening together. That's okay. Let the thing breathe. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to spending time with God. And some approaches work fine for some people and some for others. I have found what works for me. Many of you will have found what works for you, and it's probably very different between us. But some of you may not have found what works for you, and as a result, you may feel somewhat distant from God. The important thing about remaining in Jesus, staying connected to him, is that it's really important not to let it get to this. For those of you listening to a podcast of this talk, I'm showing a picture of a phone battery on empty. If that picture illustrates where you are today, I really want to encourage you to take some action to change that. Change it. Now, I know I've got a long way to go in this thing called remaining, in abiding, And when I read others on the subject, I realize there's so much more for me to grow into, but I thought it'd be helpful just to give you a glimpse into my own devotional life. Not because I've got it sorted, but just to give you an example of a normal person who may do some things that you'd find helpful and whose experiences may be closer to yours than the writers of the great devotional classics. So I'm I'm not good at this constant connection throughout the day. So as soon as my alarm clock goes off, I consciously begin my day with God. So I stay there under the covers just for a couple of minutes, and I just begin to talk to God about the day. Sometimes as I fall asleep, I'll do the same thing. My study is at the bottom of our garden, and that's where I spend most of my working week. It may be where I'm first thing in the morning, where I start my day. It could be that I start it here at the warehouse or in in some other place. But when I actually get to my study, even if that's in the late afternoon, the first thing I will do is head for my leather armchair. So I have two chairs in there, a leather armchair and my desk chair. And I know that uh, I need to head for that one. With my cup of coffee, I'll settle down there because otherwise, if I went to my desk chair and opened up my emails, there would suddenly be a flood of stuff demanding my attention. My whole time would be over and I wouldn't be able to concentrate. So I I sit in that chair and I, I read my Bible. I talk through what's on my mind with the Lord before moving to the other chair. And it might be just a few minutes. It might be an hour. It might be significantly longer than an hour. I might read a devotional book, something which points me towards Jesus as it applies what the Bible teaches. And when I had my darling dog Rex for 14 years, I used to often go off for a walk down the river. I do it much less now, but still, if I'm feeling really under pressure, really a bit overwhelmed, and I can't afford the time, I suddenly, like a switch goes, you need to go for a walk, and I just go down the river. It's fairly close to where we live, down the River Trent, and I just find that really connecting. Uh, I, I come back feeling centered again, somehow connected to God again, and you know I'm a nicer person on the return from my walk than I was just before I left. 
And it's in that place, if I'm not at peace, that I find that peace that passes all understanding. As I walk, it's not like I'm praying all the way. My mind wanders, thinks about all sorts of things. And, but it often just comes back to me chatting with the Lord through what's going on in my life, the stuff uh, that concerns me. Sometimes I'll put an iPod with a worship album and I'll go for a walk and just worship or I'll do in the gardening, mowing the lawn, whatever, and worshiping. But I find solitude really spiritually replenishing. I love being alone. Now, I do love being with my wife, Debbie, you understand. I do love being with all of you. Within limits, I love to be sometimes <laughs> on my own. So often when I go for a ride on my motorbike, I head for a secret place where I've spent many hours with the Lord, hidden from view. From, no one passing by can see me. It's just me, the Lord, and the river. Those are my boots there. You can see I'm just sitting there by the river. I'm not telling you where it is in case when I go there one day, one of you's there. So it's a secret. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I rode to another one, favorite, one of my favorite bolt holes, Lady Bower Reservoir in Sheffield. And one of the ways I connect with the Lord is just through nature. When I find myself in beautiful places, I sort of come alive. It's one of the pathways that Bill Hybels talks about in Courageous Leadership. And uh, Chapman, I think it is, wrote a book called Sacred Pathways, fantastic book. Um, nature is one of the things that brings me alive spiritually. And I suddenly discover that I'm praying in tongues. I had no idea. I had no uh, cognitive choice there. I simply am praying. And I can go and sit by a lake for a considerable period of time, just being unhurried and becoming a human being again, having so much been a human doing. There are some things I do like fasting. Most weeks probably I would fast a day a week. I don't find that at all replenishing. I hate it. But I do know that it attunes me better to hearing God. And that those occasional hunger pangs point my attention, remind me to connect with God. I sometimes journal. I don't do it every day, but as the season takes me, I'll write down what's going on with me. I'll drop my thoughts. I, it allows me to inspect my life and actually... It's a confession on the page. It's me and the Lord just writing, and I, I write sometimes my prayers out as I'm engaging within that, with that. And over recent months, uh, I've been on a bit of a spiritual journey, as has Debbie with me. We've been helped by a spiritual director. And this journey is inspired by a guy called St. Ignatius from the 16th century. And it involves Scripture. It involves journaling most days. And I really am finding it incredibly valuable in my walk with the Lord. In fact, I would say I'm probably feeling right now closer to the Lord than I have done for probably for many, many years. And then worshiping and praying with others is also part of what I do each week. So there are things that we do as we remain in Him. You don't have to do those things, but if you don't do any things, you'll find that your relationship with God is going to lack a deep connection. Remaining, abiding, it's an active state. We can't assume our relationship with the Lord will be healthy if we don't do anything about it. But while it's an active state, it's also a passive thing, resting in Him. Some of us are so wired for performance and achievement that when we hear the Lord's command, abide in me, remain in me, and we hear it repeated about 11 times in a text, we think, you know, I've got to strive harder to do this thing now. We must do our utmost to do this, and then God will play his part. So being wired for achievement, when I grasp something that needs to be done, I tend to go at it, and I go at it with energy and with focus. And the danger for me, my natural default is to think, I've got to abide better. 
I've got to abide harder. You know, and some of you are wired a bit like me. You're already thinking this, but I'm going to change my ways. That's a great sermon. I'm going to carve out some time. I'm going to start tomorrow morning. I'm really going to get into prayer, really do a good job of abiding. I'm going to remain in and I'm become fruitful. Some of you internally, you've got that little dialogue going on, monologue going on. That is not what it's in, intended here. By all means, make an effort, but it's not about striving. There's a text in Isaiah 30, verse 15. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Repentance means turning. So in turning to him, in rest, in quietness and trust, that is where fruitfulness comes. That is our strength. It's not our trying harder. And it's the opposite of mine and some of your natural tendency. In our fast-paced society where every waking minute is filled with people and emails and texts and calls and social media and things which demand our attention, if we are to be fruitful, we have to stop and be quiet. On Tuesday of this week, Debbie and I spent some time with someone who was finding life very busy, and we urged him to build some more still time into his schedule so that he could become more centered and creative. And from that meeting, I went out to my study. I sat in my leather armchair, and I was just praying. I was just journaling, and something happened, which I believe was the Lord speaking to me through something in the natural. One of the things the Ignatian journey encourages us to do is to see God in all things, expecting Him to speak through things every day. And as I sat writing, a squirrel jumped up into a tree just outside my study window, and then it sat motionless. All I could see was its tail. You may be able to make it out in the center of the picture there. It was totally still. The leaves around it were moving in the wind, but as far as I could tell, not a hair on that tail moved. It was not a twitch. And as I was just praying and writing, I thought, well, I'll time it. So I sat there. It was seriously four minutes. That tail didn't move, and then it was gone. And as you know, naturally, squirrels are hyperactive. Whenever I've seen squirrels before, they're twitchy, they're always running, they're climbing, scurrying about, they're alert. And I wrote as I prayed, and this is what I wrote. I am busy, busy, busy. I believe you just caused this squirrel to come into my view and sit still for an extended period of time to speak to me. I'm reminded of the text, you need only to be still. I couldn't remember where it came from. I looked it up. It's Exodus 14, 14. Moses is speaking to the Israelites who are scared. The, the Egyptians are after them. They've got all these troubles, all these things, all these concerns. And he says, look, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And that's a word for me. It's a word for some of you when life just gets on top of you. The Lord will sort stuff out. What you need to do is not just strive to sort it out in your own strength. Sometimes you need only to be still. So remaining means relationship. It also means obedience. Remaining means obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. You are my friends if you do what I command. So Jesus compares our remaining in his love to his remaining in his Father's love, and he did that through obedience. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't give in. Jesus was tempted not to do the things the Father wanted him to do. Jesus was tempted to do things that the Father didn't want him to do. 
He talked about not doing his own will, but doing the will of his Father. And as such, he is the perfect example of remaining through obedience in relationship with his Father. Keeping Jesus' commands is vital to an abiding relationship. If we're living life forever focused on what we want, rather than God's desire for us to obey His will, we will find that our lives are not going to be that fruitful. The Bible is full of promises that if we obey the Lord, things will go well for us. If we go off and do our own things, it won't. The secret to remaining, to abiding, is full surrender to Him. Andrew Murray, in his book, Abiding in Christ, which was written about 120 years ago, he writes this. Abiding in Jesus is nothing but the giving up of oneself to be ruled, taught, and led, enabling the disciple to rest in the arms of everlasting love. Obedience comes as we surrender ourselves to God's will. Now, I don't know whether anybody here finds obedience easy, comes naturally to you, Probably not, because like me, you're made of flesh. You naturally want to do what God says don't do, or not do what he says do do. Paul's letter to Titus tells us this in chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And yet sometimes we find ourselves doing things we ought not to do and not doing things we ought to do. You know, obedience is easier said than done. may not be a comfortable thing to think about, but if you cast your mind back to the seasons or decisions or actions in your life that you are least proud of over the course of the last week, year, the whole of your life, ask yourself this. Did those regretful moments occur when you would say you were in a season of experiencing a real sense of connection to Jesus? Or more likely, were they at points when you were more distant? When we're most connected to Jesus, Jesus, obedience comes most easily. And the reverse is also true. It's far easier to wander off track when we are disconnected to him. We're talking about investment and return. If we want the, re, the return of abundant fruitfulness, obedience is part of the investment in that principle. Remain in Jesus and obey his commands and the effect in our lives will be fruitfulness. Say yes to those things we know are right to do. Say no to those things which we know are wrong. But even this doing of obedience is something which is not just part of the investment, it's actually also part of the return. If we just read that text again, it says this, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's not simply that with the strength of our will we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and by the strength of our will we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's the grace of God which teaches us, which equips us, which enables us to do that. And that grace is like the sap which flows in an abiding relationship with Jesus. As we abide in Christ, as we remain in Jesus, we will find obeying his commands happens as part of the result, as part of the fruit of investing here in obedience. Bob Sorge, in the book that I just mentioned earlier, he talks about one of the effects of spending time with God or remaining in him, which is that obedience just simply becomes easier. 
He likens spending time with God to spending time in the sun. Extended time exposed to the sun's radiation will burn you. Extended time exposed to the Lord has a radical effect too. And I'm just going to finish by reading a little section here. He says this, When we step into the presence of God, we are exposing ourselves to eternally powerful forces. Everything within us changes when we touch the radiating glory that emits from His face. When we place ourselves in the sun of His countenance, the radiation of His glory does violence to those cancerous iniquities that we often feel helpless to fully overcome. Time in His presence is perhaps the most potent procedure to deal with the chronic sin issues that plague us. You don't know you're being exposed to radiation when it first happens. People who get sunburnt don't realize they've been exposed to excessive radiation until after the damage is done. The effects of radiation are always delayed. The same is true of God's glory. When you spend time in His presence, your first thought is, this isn't accomplishing anything. And you know, many of you have spent time with the Lord. You've spent time praying, reading the Bible. You've set aside. You've got up early. You've done what I'm talking about tonight. And you've thought, I don't feel any different at the end of this than I did at the beginning. I feel a bit bored, and I'm now half an hour later than I was when I got up. It's not really happening. It's not really achieving something. You may have felt those things, and all of us have. All of us who have a relationship with God have dry times like that. However, he says, if you will believe the truth and just devote yourselves to mega amounts of time in his presence, the effects of spending time with him will eventually manifest. He writes, I've experienced this firsthand, and I would to God that you would hear and believe what I'm telling you. Powerful things happen inside you when you spend time with God. When you're in his presence for extended periods, the molecular composition of your soul gets restructured. You start to think differently, and you don't even know why. You start to have different passions and interests, and you don't even know why. God is changing you on the inside in ways that you can't cognitively analyze. All you know is that sinful affections that once pulled at your soul no longer have their former power over you. The secret is simply this. Large chunks of time in God's presence. I know that to be the case in my own life. I know that I'm still a sinner, but I long for my passions, my interests, my affections to be aligned with God's and I confess I'm very much in process, but I've found that pressing into this, into remaining in Jesus, into choosing obedience, into spending time in his presence, to varying degrees over many decades now, I've changed. And I continue to change. And in seasons when I'm doing well in my relationship with God, I change more. Staying connected to Jesus will enable your life to be fruitful. Invest in your relationship, invest in your obedience, and the fruit will grow by itself. I'm more convinced over the years that my fruitfulness in the Christian life, my fruitfulness in leadership, in uh, leading this church and, and elsewhere is directly related to my relationship with God. It's not a result of my gifting or my abilities or my charisma, my knowledge, my hard work. The degree to which I'm fruitful is the degree to which I am connected to Him. There's nothing more important for me to grasp in the Christian life than this fact. And it's the same for all of us. Wherever your relationship with the Lord is today, some of you have not yet connected to Him. 
And you can do that beginning tonight if you'd like to. Wherever it is today, I encourage you, using this analogy that Jesus has given us in today's passage, to give yourself to connecting with Jesus, to remaining in the vine, and let his life flow through yours.